Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, book policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Friends, it is good to be back. How is everyone? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> My kids are in school for the first time in six months. That's great. Oh, did you appreciate my very sincere feelings? Yes. Mm. Yes, very much. Yeah, I, I don't know. This is like the first fall where I have felt like fall is normally a season where I feel like, you know, there's a, a sense of renewal. It's like, you know, I'm always very like happy about, you know, the pretty leaves, all that kind of stuff. It took me a long time to feel those feelings as I've seen like just like the coverage of the U.S. election ramp up and the case counts. It's like feels very it's not my favorite fall uh, beginning that we've had so far. Aren't you a Schitt's Creek fan? Don't you love Schitt's Creek? And they won all the awards last night. That was something. That was something. But it's like John Turner, RBG, like the world. It just feel it's a bit heavy. I'm feeling a bit heavy. Well, I was going to say, Chris, you can still feel like that's an accomplishment because I'm just numb. <laughs> so, you know, kudos to you for being able to still feel something. Uh, it's been a year of readjusting expectations and and, and I, I, I like that, <laughs> the maintenance smart. of any emotional capacity. <laughs> Well, uh, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking about what we know of the government's fall agenda. We're going to be talking about the Doug Ford, Stephen Lecce back to school plan. Stick around because later on the pod, we have Queen's Park Today reporter Sabrina Nanji uh, to talk uh, with us to talk about how the parties are approaching the fall term and starting to gear up for the 2022 election. We'll dive into some of the nomination issues that are already beginning. But first, we've talked about it. There is a nip in the air. And that can only mean one thing, it's fall. Hopefully that nip is not deadly virus particles. But fall means a couple things. Sweaters, pumpkin spice latte marketing, and the Ontario legislature being back in business after recessing for the summer. Uh, After not meeting since July, the legislature came back on September 14th for the fall session, which the Ford government announced some pretty COVID-y priorities, focusing on health preparedness and rebuilding the economy as their kind of two pillars of activity. And while a COVID focus should not surprise anyone, what might surprise folks is just how little the Ford government's attention to COVID extends to spending. So the Financial Accountability Office released a report with some interesting findings. And Grima, I'm wondering if you can uh, walk us through a few of them. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, The FAO prepared a really interesting summary a couple of weeks ago about the measures implemented in Ontario by both the provincial and federal government in response to the pandemic. And I think that it's a really fascinating uh, paper, and I encourage everybody to go read it, um, because the FAO identified a total of 138 COVID-19 response measures in the province, with 68 of them coming from the feds and 70 of them coming from the province. Of the 126 direct support measures, there are about 61 federal measures, which provide Ontarians with about $102 billion dollars and 65 provincial measures, which have a net cost of $3.6 billion. So I've just said a lot of numbers, but (laughs) what this actually means is that the share of the federal government's direct support measures in Ontario is equivalent of 97% of spending in direct support measures, whereas the the province's share is about 3%. 
So the number of measures is really the same, almost the same, but the quantum is like drastically different. So what you can see from the spending thus far is that the vast majority of the measures have been economic measures, trying to support people and families as the government asks them to stay home and not go to work, not eat at restaurants, take transit or travel so that we could flatten the curve. In Ontario, the the CERB and the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy provides um, about 70 or just over $70 billion. And these two programs provide direct payments or wage subsidies to approximately one-third of working-age Ontarians. That is huge and is absolutely unprecedented in the province, um, and I want to say the country, in the amount of support that is going to working-age people in the province. That's just that's just not been seen before, and I think is not only reflective of the moment that we're in, but also reflects how critical these supports have been to help bridge people um, from the onset of the pandemic to where we are now. Totally. And so I've seen a lot of uh, partisans on Twitter putting up that 97% figure, uh, 97% of support coming from the federal government as opposed to the conservatives. And I'm curious, like, is that how it should be? Is Ontario like sort of pulling it to weight in terms of the COVID response? We've seen so much money coming to support individuals from the federal government, but a response that seems to be coordinated between both levels. So, you know, what room does on, do we think Ontario, maybe just throwing it to the group, what room do we think Ontario has to maneuver in terms of spending? Is, is this the picture that we would have hoped to see at this point in the pandemic? I think it depends on public perception on who gets the accolades and who gets the blame, right? Because neither government is going to balance the budget federally or provincially um, anytime soon. And because the federal government is spending such a disproportionately larger amount than the provincial government is, their deficit is going to be enormous. And it's going to be enormous for a really long time. Are they going to get punished for that in by the electorate for doing that versus provincial governments that might not have contributed nearly as much? If so, then I don't think that's fair. I think it should be more more evenly split. I mean, when we're talking about infrastructure investments and things like that, we usually try to find a way to do you know, a third federal, a third provincial, a third municipal. I agree, there is only one taxpayer, but there's a lot of politics that get played around with budgets and commitments and deficits and things like that that have to be factored into this. So if they're all going to get equal praise for it, then then great, but let's you know, be conscious of that next time we talk about this at the voting booth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like I'm a bit torn about it because I think there is something to be said for national consistency in, um, you know, some of the measures, especially around income support and, and, and business support. And so like the fact that the federal government took the lead is in some ways great. And they obviously kind of overstepped their jurisdiction in many ways throughout this pandemic, including most recently, you know, the supports for schools that we're going to talk about in a bit. But I think the provinces have gotten away with it, so to speak. And I think to Alvin's point of the politics to come, the path back to balance um, for the provinces is going to be so much easier than uh, the feds because of how this has unfolded. And so um, I'm I just not, not sure that voters 
yet recognize how this really unfolded. It's pretty complicated, like who's paying for what, right? And so I just hope that that is something that the voters understand and uh, that the liberal, federal liberals are not, you know, are treated appropriately given the circumstances. And then I think on focusing on Ontario for a second, I think the stuff that they are directly responsible for, you know, schools, testing, healthcare capacity, long-term care, in so many ways have screwed up much more than the feds have done on the stuff that they took responsibility for. And that is a direct result of governance and money. And so I think like, I hope as this story unfolds and people like, and we enter into this second wave that that like becomes clear. Like, I think the, who did this right and who's not pulling their weight is becoming clearer and clearer. Whether the public consciousness is there yet, I'm not yet sure. But I do think that it's our our responsibility at some level to really talk about who actually has the fiscal power to be doing the things that are being done, right? And so in the public consciousness, there's still a debate around should there be public spending or not? I was at a dinner party, not a party. It was a dinner. There was four of us. Um, Breaking news. Scandal. It was not a dinner party. It was four of us. Uh, We were very distanced. Um, But it was our friends, and they are expecting a newborn baby soon. Um, And they were really concerned about the level of spending and what this means about the burden that future generations are going to hold. And that's something that, you know, as much as like my back kind of straightened up and like I was ready to go in with the, well, did you know X? Did you know Y? I think, you know, really understanding that there is a a deep public sentiment that resists uh, public spending is important. And so if if we can push back against, well, what are the alternatives here? I think that's really important. If the feds didn't step in in a cohesive way, Sam, as you said, um, it would have been on consumers because the provinces would have not stepped up and consumers or people and families would have been paying 18% of interest on their credit card debt. Um, so absolutely, this was, uh, we've collectivized the risk associated with all of this, and it's been the fiscally prudent way to go. Um, moving forward, if the federal government with its fiscal power uh, wants to encourage the provinces to do something, I think that there's huge room on child care, on pharma care, on long-term care, on um, on social assistance, a deep-rooted interest of mine to create some cohesion in how these programs are developed across the country while respecting the jurisdictions of provinces, but also saying, if you've got re- jurisdiction, you also have a responsibility that you need to meet. And that bit has been missing for some time. Yeah, I kind of agree that I don't necessarily think that individual people see that much of a difference between programs that are federal, provincial, municipal. I've never seen a lot of evidence that people make distinctions truly. Um, But people know who Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau are, and they know what they're announcing. And there was a broadband abacus poll that came out just recently that showed that a majority of Canadians, 54% of those uh, surveyed, want to see bold new ideas coming out of uh, their governments this fall, compared with 36% who said they wanted changes, but nothing that would fundamentally change how things are done. Um, And particularly amongst 
former liberal voters, uh, there was a, uh, a plurality of said that you know if the scope of change that is not and uh, is not perceived as ambitious enough that would make them think twice about voting liberal again uh things that were in that survey were ch- uh, were child care pharmacare support for frontline workers taxing the rich all of those were ideas that had majority support uh in this poll so i think uh something that's really really interesting um so when i think about what this costs the province, do I necessarily think the public is going to look at 97% versus 3% and give the Ford government a penalty? I don't think that is true. But I think if the provincial government doesn't act boldly uh, or seem to be acting boldly, that's, that's an opportunity cost for them. Like you have a, a a lack of a national strategy in the U.S. and clearly that has been a negative outcome for states, um, all fifty states, right? They they don't have a strategy nationally for PPE even to coordinate uh, getting enough uh, materials for people to to just survive the pandemic. So I'm glad the federal government is obviously taking leadership on that. But you can see these issues right now that you just brought up, Chris, where the federal government wants to talk about pharmacare and Doug Ford the other day said, you know, that's our that's a provincial jurisdiction. He kind of should mind his own business, except he's happy to take the money when it's paying and contributing to healthcare in other ways. He just wants sort of a blank check so that the federal government can be, you know, paying for all the programs that they get to deliver and decide what to do with. So, I mean, I think they're friends right now. I think it's going to get a little bit more complicated as the federal government is going to come out with a throne speech that is going to be much more prescriptive prescriptive on a on a on a pharmacare plan or anything like that absolutely so let's dive into that actually the ford government had a couple of things that they've kicked off the fall session with the first being a press release that talked about uh, the health investments they want to make uh, they're going to be focusing on ppe supply skills training construction uh, infrastructure broadband small business relief and expanding local manufacturing um, but the one uh, one thing that caught my eye uh, was a call on the part of the province with the other provinces uh, calling for Ottawa to specifically increase its support uh, through the Canada health transfer. So they want the federal government to cover 35% of all provincial and territorial health care costs. Currently, the, they give us about $16.2 billion, so, and that's about uh, 25% of what we spend. But I think it's interesting because in this, you start to see a bit of color in how the Ford government uh, wants to move forward, and it is sort of exactly that. You know, they want money through the Canada health transfer, um, but they want authority of how to spend it uh and you also i think it's interesting because you see them do you see them move in some progressive seeming directions when it doesn't actually cost the government anything like the rent freeze will cost landlords but it won't cost the government anything out of pocket i'm curious for you know when you look at this sort of pastiche what we see about uh how the government is trying to balancing their priorities you know what their strategy is and you know Uh, maybe digging in a little bit more about how we see that relationship with feds moving forward. Were you brushing up on your thesaurus on on our break? (laughs) (laughs) Um, My uh, initial, so I must admit, I thought that the Canada health transfer like calls of the premiers was so bizarre. Like it was one of the strangest things that's happened the whole COVID time. Cause I think like there's just this, sense that the feds are doing all this heavy lifting the feds are in such fiscal trouble you know they did this 19 billion dollars that was basically all provincial jurisdiction to help with healthcare costs and schools and whatnot and then it just felt so tone deaf to be like oh yeah and and more too please for our like literally co- exclusive provincial jurisdiction of of healthcare i, I thought it was very strange I, I to your point chris i guess they think it might work because like you know the feds are 
acting in all sorts of of bold ways right now. Um, so maybe they just thought it was worth a shot, but it was strange. And I think the Fed should tell them to take a hike and and use their nineteen billion dollars. Yeah, and I raise think... federal raise provincial taxes. Sorry, Grima. Like, no, no, like no. this isn't the only level of government that can you know bring in revenue. Yep, exactly. And like a part of this is like, what are you going to use additional healthcare money for? Right? Is it to strengthen capacity of the healthcare sector, which you should have been doing already, or is it to actually flatten the curve? And so, if you want to, like. The only way that we're getting out of this and getting into an economic recovery is if we actually deal with transmission and increasing transmission of the virus. And that's not happening. That's not going to happen in a hospital setting. That's actually going to happen in the community. That has to happen with better employment standards. That has to happen with better housing. That has to happen with you know, space in schools that has to happen with better testing capacity. And so it's, it's not only tone deaf, but it's just, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily good policy because again, it's, it's dealing with the downstream issues that are for sure uh, top of mind for people without actually taking into account that we're not going to get into recovery mode. Um, unless we've actually figured out how to manage transmission. I mean, the thing that I find really interesting coming from the premiers, I mean, they want they want more money from the feds. They want to help them deal with the situations that they want to deal with. Like they might get more than they can handle, right? So you have in this federal agreement right now, uh, federal funding for paid sick leave, Right. So the federal government is now contributing to paid sick leaves for Ontarians because Doug Ford got rid of it a year and a half ago or whatever it was. You know, Doug, I guess, is happy to take the money and and, and not have to deal with it. But then how much more like at what point is the federal government be like, well, we're just going to do this. Right. And if you want us to spend tax dollars for your province, then maybe we should just tax you more. Right. Like, why does Alberta still have no PST and why does the rest of Canada have to compensate for the fact that they don't because they don't have enough money to deliver the services they want? Now the federal government's doing it. So then the federal government should just tax them the same rate that every other province is taxing their people to pay for the services and programs that they want. Right. So at some point, I think they need to watch like they're going to cut themselves out of this equation if they uh, sort of keep you know, hat in hand every time asking for funding for these programs. There is, I think, an interesting role, because I remember when we were in provincial government, I used to sometimes, I was always in the back of my head, I was sort of like, you know, our responsibilities are education and healthcare or, and delivery of those sectors to people, which are the two most expensive line items. And, you know, I used to wish that we had some of the fiscal, the fiscal flexibility that the federal government had, because we do deal with less room in Ontario. Um you know, how much less room is the subject of intense debate, but, you know, the federal government has the most flexibility. Um, but it, yeah, it really does seem like where the Ford government is trying to get its political wins are in areas like local ventilator production, attracting, um, getting the Oakville auto plant back open, which are popular, but are, uh, the rent freeze, I think is interesting. They're looking for wins in places that they don't need to spend. Um, and I think it's yeah a, a good reminder that despite the new image, Rosie, uh, of, of Doug Ford as this congenial premier, there is still a very 
fiscally conservative strategy behind it that the pandemic, I think, will will continue to test. So actually, that might be a good transition into an area where I think we are seeing that dynamic play out, which is the back to school. Um, so of course, one of the biggest areas of focus for the province has been how to get kids back to school. So Sam, um, I'm wondering if you can, uh, it's been a while, we actually missed, uh, in our summer break, we missed the entire back to school announcement saga. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through the roller coaster that uh, our, our, I'm sure our listeners were paying attention to but you know they haven't heard it from us yet so um <laughs> uh sure happy to and and i'll uh try to be brief because there was a lot of twists and turns uh through the summer so yeah you're right it started in june mid-june the government announced um its reopening plan and asked school boards to prepare three scenarios uh so a full kind of return to normal um a fully remote online and then a hybrid in which um basically kids would go to school half time in half uh, cohorts of, of a max of 15. Um, and the government asked school boards to go away and plan for those um, plans and announced only, as you say, $25 million for mental health and technology supports, which at the time was sort of panned as completely insufficient. And then between June and July, there was kind of growing calls and chorus that halftime uh, elementary was not acceptable basically to parents. It had to be full-time. And so the government just basically scrapped that plan. You, it actually, if you go to it now on the website, it's it says it's been archived, which is interesting, um, and announced on July 30th, a new plan of full-time elementary uh, and then a regional approach to secondary where uh, in like rural and remote um, in Northern areas, it's full-time, uh, but for most urban areas, it's uh, the, the halftime max 15 approach. Um, and they announced $300 million in support uh, to for a variety of things. So a bunch of new custodians, 900 custodians, just a note, there are 5,000 schools. That's not as many as it sounds like. Money for PPE, money to clean school buses, and then um, uh, money for nurses. So a bunch of nurses were going to get hired and testing capacity, uh, as well as another 10 million for mental health. Again, though, um, people noticed noted that there wasn't any money to reduce uh, class sizes. Um, and so at elementary, that meant uh, basically returning with with full class sizes, which can at the one to three level is usually capped at 20, but um, from four to eight um, can mean classes of 30 to 35. So clearly they kept continued to feel the heat because two weeks later in mid-August, they announced more money for HVAC, 50 million for HVAC, uh, 18 million for principals to um, uh, help guide remote learning. And then they, quote unquote, unlocked uh, $240 million, which meant that boards could go further into their deficits by 1%, basically encouraged the boards to fix the class size issue um, with that, even though truly creating 15 to 1 class sizes would cost over a billion dollars. They um, That was their sort of uh, measure, which I remain mystified by why they decided to, to use that approach. The, I'm going to divert for a second just to note that school boards are consolidated entities, which is like a fancy fiscal term, meaning when school boards run deficits or surpluses, it shows up on the provincial books. So it was still a cost to the province when they said we're unlocking these deficits, but the politics was so bad. Anyway, 
I remained so mystified by that whole saga. But they yes. moved on from that. And by August 26th, um, the federal government uh, had uh, announced its package. And so um, $380 million was the first half of the federal support. Uh, and they basically handed all that over to the school boards, to their credit, uh, for a whole bunch of things, uh, most of which is flexible money um, that they could hire more, more teachers and educators if they wanted to. But then they topped up a bunch of things, more nurses, more spec ed, more transportation money, uh, more PPE, which, again, made me like question, like, if there was needs for PPE or needs for student transportation, why were you waiting until the federal government money came through? Anyway, um, so that's where we are now. School has returned, and I'm sure Alvin's going to tell us how, how it's going uh, from his own perspective. Um, but I guess just a few pieces. So um, in all this chaos of announcing huge amounts of money right before the school year started, uh, they announced. Uh, that the school year start could stagger over the first two weeks. So uh, very few boards started right away, uh, though we're now um, past this two-week point. A bunch of classes have been reorganized and collapsed uh, as students and parents have moved in and out of of, um, remote versus in-person. But interestingly, uh, an analysis has found that in low-income and racialized neighborhoods, the rate at which people are going back uh, in person is much lower uh, than um, in higher income neighborhoods, which is almost the opposite of what people's instinct would be, that that the low income would have no choice basically than to have their kids go back and that the high income would would keep kids at home. Um, So that's been uh, an interesting uh, dynamic. And then um, finally, one last piece that is remains ongoing is that the teachers unions have filed a labor board complaint that these measures for health and safety are insufficient, which is set to be heard, I believe, this week. Um, so lots going on and we'll continue, I'm sure, to cover this story. But that is the back to school saga. Whew. Uh, Alvin, I guess maybe I, I kind of want to start with you just because you're the only one of us that is currently living it. Uh, yeah, w- w- how, how have you experienced this? So I guess a quick reminder, I do have three children. <laughs> uh, they are in grade one, three, and five. So we're sort of straddling that, you know, they must wear a mask. And one of my kids does, uh, my old son Jackson does, my younger kids, Ellie and Charlie, do not. Um, Rebecca as a healthcare worker, I mean, she's an emergency uh, room nurse. Uh, is very conscious about that and uh, has asked all our kids to wear their mask all the time. Uh, and they're more than happy to, although I'm pretty sure my son, my youngest son and, and my daughter are one, if not one of two uh, kids who do wear their masks all day. And actually, we had a had to have a discussion with our principal who said um, their teacher told them to take off their masks during the day. And we said, no, <laughs> they should be able to wear it if they want to. Um, and there's still a lot of misinformation out there because people, including some of the teachers would be like, it's unhealthy to wear your mask all day. I'm like, no, it's not. And my wife wears it for 12 hours of the day, including a lead suit and a whole other face shield and, and gloves all the time. So, uh, what I found really interesting though, is how different people's experiences have been going back to school. We went back the Thursday after Labor Day and always, we're always staggered because, my last name starts with T and we're always sort of at the end of the line. But that's fine because once they were in school, they didn't they didn't they never left. And there was only half classes for the first week and then the classes were full the week after that and so they've been in school for I think this is probably their 11th or 12th day already. And and it's been good, but it's so different from other people's experiences. Like I know families who just started their first full day last Thursday or last Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so depending on what board you're in, what community you're in, um, what you've decided for your kids in, in terms of if you want online learning at all or partial or whatever it is, everyone's experience is so drastically different. So 
I, I guess I want to ask a question here to all these former uh, education staffers here. Like, what do you think that's going to do to the to kids and the quality of education that they're going to get over this COVID year for 2020, 2021? Why are these boards ha- coming up with such drastically different plans for, for the same group of students, essentially? Right. And should there have been more leadership coming from the provincial government to say this is what you should be doing as opposed to just saying do whatever you think is right? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And to your point, I think I put a lot of this at the feet of the provincial government in that the school boards were given so little time to know what resources they had to work with to come up with their back to school plan. Um, And in particular, um, the sort of last minute changes in August that like, I think everybody's just doing the best they can to like get this thing off the ground and then they're going to worry about like pedagogy later. I guess I have faith in like the teachers of Ontario that like it's going to even out as people settle into it. It was asking a lot. Most teachers didn't even know what grade they were teaching until like the day before they met their students. And so, um, but with this second wave, you have to wonder how long this schools will even be open. Right. And so, um, it's all, it's all a bit disheartening, um, but. There's a couple of mom groups or dad groups that I've been part of who um, the majority of them think we're not going to make it to Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think that's maybe true. So what about the unions here? Because we were talking a little bit, we wanted to touch a little bit about what the unions are sort of saying. Is there a legitimate case here that they're coming up saying that this is um, you know, unsafe, they've been unprepared, they haven't had the resources that they actually need to to do either distance learning or do you know, online learning, but even learning in the classroom, is that a fair criticism and, and, and what else should be done because of that? So I actually, this was, I was thinking about this when you asked your sort of last question about, you know, what's like, why is, how much of this is the provincial government's fault? And one thing that I, I, I lay very much at the feet of the province um, is the real animosity that has built with the unions over the course of this. I mean, it seems like forever ago, but it like, it makes sense that it's there. Um, like the, they entered this crisis wrapping up labor negotiations with the teachers, which is like the most acrimonious time you're ever going to be. Like I remember having and experiencing frustration in the ministry at that time, even though, you know, we had very close relationships with the teachers that were uh, really productive. It's just an inherently combative process. Um, I sort of wonder how different it would have been. And I wonder how much the government would have thought about reducing class sizes to combat the pandemic if they hadn't just spent the previous several months before the pandemic trying to increase class sizes. Like it must like that, you know, the same people in the same rooms being presented with a different thing. And I think it's interesting because when you look at that sick kids report that came out, they did everything in it except for the one thing they didn't want to do which was hire more teachers. And so did you see on the Steve Pakin on the agenda said that he was told by a government source, the primary reason that they dragged their feet on it was that they didn't want more union teacher members before the next election. I was like, come on. I really hope that's not true. Oh, but yeah, but like Doug Ford has, you know, made several, like he, it's the one, he's been very congenial, except when it comes to the teachers unions. He said, teachers have got to pull up their socks and stuff like that, which I think for me really clangs, but we'll see how it hits the electorate. I mean, the NDP has come out, uh, they had their motion, which was supported by the Liberals and the Greens that, you know, if we can't have indoor gatherings of more than 10, let's have classrooms be no more than 15. 
um, that was defeated by uh, by the conservative government. The liberals obviously had their fully costed plan, which is upwards of three billion dollars of uh, you know reducing class sizes, but also paying for uh, more sanitation, more more classrooms, more transportation. I mean, so many parents out there right now are struggling with busing. Right, that busing has been a huge issue in in Ottawa, a huge issue in in rural Ontario during this crisis, where you know they can't they can't find enough bus drivers, they can't keep them clean, they can't um, you know people aren't, uh, aren't 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 doing the routes, and it still seems to be a mess. I'm not sure how quickly it'll it'll get solved, but I mean there must have been a, a middle ground here between what uh, the opposition is asking for and 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 what the government is actually willing to do. What do you think is the way out at this time to try and make this work as best as possible for parents and students? Well, I mean, I don't think the government is going to change course now because like the time to do that was was before. Right. And so I think I think this is just going to get I think people are going to ride this out as it is until um, until a second wave shuts it all down again, um, which you know, isn't the fault of the school plan. Like that was obviously the community spread was happening before that, but it's not going to make it any better. It's going to probably accelerate it. Right. And so, so somebody asked me this great process question this weekend. And if you, cause you guys worked in the ministry, I'm really curious to what you think about this. They were asking, there's obviously a number, there's a memo somewhere in the ministry of education that says, when we reach this level of hospitalizations of COVID cases among students, we will shut down schools. What do you think that number is? What do you think the process of getting to that was? And, you know, what do you think, like, what, what's going to pull the trigger for that to actually happen for, for like, Leche or, or Ford to make that decision? I don't know. I'm not enough of an expert. Um, but I was reading that, like, at this pace, this second wave is going to be worse than the first. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's going to peak probably in late October. And so, like presumably it would be ahead of that and so like i think the thanksgiving guess is probably a good one now i I don't think that means that they never should have opened they should have opened with more investment uh and you know why can't we double the bus driver wage and get double the bus drivers like everything is possible nothing is impossible you just have to fucking go do the thing uh and they just refused all summer hilariously i just um, maybe I cut this out of the pod because it might be way too inside baseball, but student transportation was my file at the Ministry of Education. Bus driver shortages were a problem well before COVID even started. And bus drivers tend to be seniors. And so like anyone, anyone could have told you that not like not only are you going to face pressure on the driver's side from just the fact that we already had pressure, but seniors are going to retire like if i'm 60 years old i'm not putting myself on a bus with like a bunch of kids and you know we put in place a retention strategy that the government has continually funded to their credit but it was always meant to be a band-aid and it was always uh there over pre-existing conditions so the fact that actually we student transportation doesn't make the headlines i had assumed it was kind of getting worked on so when i saw all this stuff about busing coming through i was shocked because i was kind of like oh like this is like this was a foreseeable problem. There was a great interview on CBC over the weekend where they interviewed a bus driver who drives for two different boards. They use the same bus and said one school board was very, you know, uh, very rigid. They had exact student placements for each seat and how far away they were going to be. Um, And everything was sorted out and they all had to have masks on the blah, blah, blah. And then she said the other board was just utter chaos. It was, this is your route. Go pick up the kids, drop them off at the school. 
there was no no information around COVID, no information around how distant kids had to be. Uh, my son's a little disappointed this year because he's in grade five and his school goes to grade six and how they normally uh, sit on the bus is by age. And he was like, I was really excited. I was going to sit at the back of the bus as one of the oldest kids. And now I have to sit with my brother and sister. <laughs> he was not happy about that. Oh. I think like just to Alvin's question, my, maybe my last word on this is like, there's a lot of politics of this. There's a lot of like practicalities for parents and families and like that will consume the oxygen. But I think like what will not get reported on and thought about until like we're well past this crisis is how wide the learning gaps have widened between uh poor racialized marginalized people and uh, and children and and others and um the implications of that for society are bigger than just you know getting back to school and so um i think we have to continue to try to like shine a light on that too as we as we go along Hey there. So we're going to be splitting episodes this season up into two sections. The first section will be our regular news panel that you already know and you've just heard. And we're going to be talking about the headlines of the past week. We'll also we'll then be devoting the second half of the pod to deep dives on political and policy issues that you might be familiar with. So before we get to our interview today on party nominations with uh, Sabrina Nanji, we want to ask you to do some things that will help us support the pod this season. Number one, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or head to OntarioLoud.ca, hit the Patreon link. You can sign up to support us for as little as $2 per month and it really, really helps us keep doing this, put in front of more people, pair volunteers, all that. Number two, you can review us on iTunes. Go to the podcast app you're listening on right now, write us a review. You know, except if you're going to be a jerk and leave us a bad one, then maybe don't do it. But if you hate us, why are you listening to us? This doesn't make any sense. Number three, get at us on social and post about the show. You can tag us on Twitter at OutOntarioLoud. And we have a Facebook group that pains us a little bit because Facebook is destroying democracy, but we have it anyways. This season, we're going to be doubling down on using our platform to tell stories that go underreported and voices that go underrepresented. And we want to give you more insight into the policy and politics that drive the news. So if you do any of those three things I just mentioned, uh, it will help us do that in a major way all right it's enough of me back to the pod welcome back to ontario loud i am really excited for this next segment because joining us today is queen's park today reporter sabrina nanji sabrina has written on topics related to government democracy politics and labor for a wide variety of outlets that you'd know uh, the toronto star thompson reuters uh, and queen's park briefing sabrina has lately been covering the ford government's reactions to the uptick in covid cases events unfolding as ontario's political parties start nominating candidates for the 2022 election yes that is a thing that is already happening uh, sabrina welcome to ontario that. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so uh, you've been covering lately a lot of the uh, nomination activity that's happening in political parties. And nominations uh, can always be classic sources of drama and intrigue for political parties. I'm remembering some of the police investigations into some of Patrick Brown's nominations uh, in the last go round. So I maybe wanted to start big picture and ask you kind of where are we at generally re-election pair 
preparedness for 2022? Yeah, I mean, 2022 is not that far away. Uh, we're about, you know, a little more than halfway through the Ford government's first mandate here. Right in their first year, even the, the PC, they named their re-election, nom- uh, re-election committee uh, on the party side of things. So, you know, even uh, I think all the parties are sort of looking ahead. Uh, there's always these rumors floating around Queen's Park right now. I will stress rumors about, you know, a snap election possibly in the spring. Uh, you know, Doug Ford is is uh, very popular right now, and we're we're hearing you know uh, some pundits thinking that he might try to capitalize on that. But um, what what uh, comes before the election is nominations, and that's what I'm hoping we can talk about more. You mentioned you know these are a source for drama and shenanigans, I guess. Uh, and and you mentioned the Tories in 2018 having a lot of headlines about this stuff. Um, you know, some of it was pretty contentious, like uh, involved involved legal questions. And, you know, there were also some more, I would say, maybe silly stories. Uh, there was that one story about a candidate who was, you know, supposedly disqualified for eating a hamster off a hockey stick. And then it turned out it was a poutine. I'm, I'm not sure if we ever really <laughs> on that. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, for 2022, or, or whenever, which is the next scheduled election, you know, coming up, it's all the eyes are really on the Ontario Liberal Party, because they really have the most ground to make up right now. They only have eight members uh, sitting here in caucus at Queen's Park, you know, a bunch of them are already the incumbents are already getting uh, or have already been renominated and are, are, you know, locked in for the next vote and the next campaign. But there's still more than 100 people to nominate. And in COVID times, you know, that's really tricky. So I think, you know, the time is ripe for this drama. And yeah, I'm hoping we can talk a little more about about some of the details. Yeah, I'm I'm always really excited to talk about party politics, what we can do better, what could we reform? And there's always a lot of drama around this. But some people like to call it sort of inside baseball. But I, I always thought it was an incredibly important uh, piece of the democratic process. So I guess to other people who aren't necessarily as informed about nominations or or the process, why do you feel that this is uh, an important process? Why should the general public care about uh, party nominations? Yeah, I mean, um, I think this stuff is important, but you're completely right. A lot of people will will say we're talking inside baseball right now. Um, You know, the mainstream doesn't really pay attention to you know, political nomination contests. But really, you know, the way our political system is set up is that uh, political parties, you really have to be a part of a political party, um, you know, to, to, to get uh, to electoral office. And so you have to be, you know, there are successful independents and all that. But really to, to get, um, you know, as much support uh, and, and all of that, I do think that political parties, they are the, the gateway to democracy and, and nominations is how you get your foot in the door. So I do think that, you know, at a grassroots level, um, that, that it's important to democracy and, and that we should be covering it. So you published a story last week and continued, uh, I think, published a follow-up this week on a particular controversy as the Liberals start to nominate candidates that's unfolding in the Toronto Centre riding. So I'm wondering if you can uh, walk us through uh, what you found. Yeah, um, so... This is about the Toronto Centre uh, nomination. There's been earlier in September, uh, there the party announced that they had uh, nominated, effectively acclaimed uh, David Morris as the candidate for 2022. Um, he, uh, when I say acclaimed, I mean he was running uncontested. So he was the only one that really ended up submitting papers. Uh, and the more I started uh, asking questions about this, you know, I was hearing things about, you know, some candidates maybe feeling like they were overlooked or didn't really get a shot. You know, they they felt like the process was, was done 
secretively and very quickly. And when I talk to the party, you know, everything's, uh, at least on the surface, you know, it, it does seem like, like the rules were followed. Um, and I do think like we did talk a little bit about how this is inside baseball and, you know, people feel certain ways and, and are willing to voice it in, in these nomination contests, which can get heated. But I, I mean, I think for me, what what really was newsworthy and what I wanted to dig into and report on more was the fact that the Ontario Liberal Party has this um, nomination, uh, sorry, in nominations, they have this uh, candidate diversity policy. I guess I'll just call it the equity policy for um, just for clear, like just to be clear, but mm-hmm. um, it, it's essentially that riding associations have to show that they've made, you know, substantial, meaningful efforts to reach out to so-called underrepresented groups, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, people from the LGBTQ community. Um, and they've had, they have to reach out to those communities, you know, to search out potential nomination contestants, potential people who would be good representatives for us at Queens Park that we want to run in the next election. And, and what I've been finding and, and in particular about Toronto Centre, which is what the stories have been about, is that that's not really quite what's happening on the ground, is that the party is saying this publicly. But uh, in practice, you know, in reality, I'm hearing from uh, you know, candidates of color, uh, uh, black candidates, you know, um, I should say prospective candidates, you know, some, some have, I've talked to you have just decided, you know, just to bow out. Some are still waffling. Like I said, nominations are happening at lightning speed, but, uh, I am hearing that, you know, they're not really having that experience. Mm-hmm. So I'll, uh, just say, sort of say for transparency and for our listeners sake that, uh, we know David Morris, uh, um, I personally have supported him both in terms of, uh, signatures and in the past, and he's actually supported Ontario Loud in the past, but I wanted to sort of ask in, uh, sort of the response, uh, I've seen in the stories you've published, the party has sort of said, and you, you've, you've acknowledged this, that, you know, we we have uh, followed our, our pro- procedures and our, our policy. And I, I'm curious, like, you know, what the actual duty of the party to inform the membership of nominations uh, actually is, you know, how do the other candidates sort of feel who are talking to you feel about how they were informed about sort of the details of the process? Give us a little bit more color commentary on, on how the sort of other perspective, interesting people feel about how they were approached and informed. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great question. I, I just want to like take a moment here to just explain to people who are listening if they can hear bells going on in the background <laughs> where I'm at. Um, I'm at Queen's Park right now, and this, these are the bells that are summoning MPPs uh, like just before question period for their proceedings. So they'll, they'll stop in a couple minutes, but just in case people were wondering what's going on here. Um, this is, uh, making me both nostalgic and like low-key uh, stressed out remembering having to find uh, you know the minister and get her into the house at time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for for us, like I said, like they do get a bit annoying, and sometimes they have like the thirty minute bells. Um, but you know, it, it allows everyone a chance to vote. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's always good. Um, but yes, okay. So I guess you know, in terms of the the technical procedural stuff, uh, yeah, I mean, as as far as I can tell, you know, um, it does seem like the people who had asked for uh, you know pap- like papers like filing papers to file for the nomination that they uh, they were the ones who were informed. And that that seems to be how it goes, you know, um, the usual process, you know, they were informed about deadlines and that type of thing. Some of those people did feel that, you know, it was 
uh, it was done very quickly and there was, uh, you know, there was not a lot of time to do what they needed to do there. There are certain uh, checkpoints, you know, you need to get a certain amount of signatures and that type of thing. Um, so I think, yes, like I have also heard, you know, in unofficial, in unoff- like this is not coming from like the party in any official capacity, but just liberals, uh, you know, insiders that, that I've been talking to, they like so, some of them do think that, you know, everything was fine and and it's you know uh, completely in the in the political party's prerogative to effectively shoehorn in a candidate that that they like like the the leader has the the right to do that you know uh Stephen Del Duca he does have the power to appoint some candidates and mm-hmm. um you know I'm not saying that that there was an appointment here but uh I think a lot of people felt like David Morris was someone that they 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 liked you know Milton Chan the party uh the party the riding president, um, you know, and, and Stephen Del Duca as well. I guess this is what I'm hearing from, you know, candidates who did feel discouraged and dismissed and like they didn't really have a shot. And, and a lot of people, you know, say that that's just the way it goes. Um, a lot of people say that that's, that that's um, how it is. You know, the, the party is its own private entity. I mean, I know we were talking about how this is the gateway to democracy, but, uh, you know, legally, for all intents and purposes, parties do function as their own private uh, private bodies. They have their own constitutions that govern them. I mean, for, mm-hmm. for me, and, and so that's what I mean. Like, I think there is this perennial debate about, uh, you know, how democratic really are political parties. And, and you know, I do think that this these stories are, are part of that um, and, and can be fodder for that debate. But for me, it's, it's more that what I thought was important about writing this story um, was that OLP is saying, you know, outwardly, we're, we're doing all this outreach for all these diverse candidates. Um, and it's not really what the experience has been for everyone. I, I think even there's this other layer of winnable writings, you know, like where are yeah. candidates of color, women, um, women of color, like which writings are they from? And I think, you know, Toronto Center uh, could, could be very competitive, uh, as with a lot of Toronto ridings downtown the gta like i said the liberals have a lot of ground to make up um and like david morris is great i haven't heard anything bad about him like at all mm-hmm. but i think that for, for other people in the party uh who are really you know serious about this in- inclusive uh you know mandate they, they never had the chance you know like Yes, David Morris was the candidate in 2018. He's got a lot of legwork. Um, he's been working the riding, maybe, let's say. And, and you know, maybe he is, you know, the, the one to beat. But we'll never really know. We'll never know because no one really, uh, no one else had had a shot. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, though, uh, everything fo- followed the rules as far as as far as I can tell. And, and the party says, you know, David Morris was the only one who submitted papers at the end of the day. Um, he's our guy, uh, you know, Stephen Del Duca even said in, in his latest comment to me, uh, I should add that he will be here at Queens Park later today. So I'll get to ask him about this stuff in person and hopefully we'll have an update for you guys. But, um, yeah, you know, he's, he said that he strongly endorsed David. So I think there's, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance at play here. I, I mean, I always have a lot to say about nominations. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I don't know why we keep needing to have these disclaimers, but you know, like I'm not on the central campaign right now. I'm not part of the nominations committee. I may or may not be seeking my own nomination at some point. But I think, you know, there's, 
there's a there's a line that parties and liberals are trying to balance, right? We we want obviously diversity in, in many ways. We've got these aspirational goals for 50% of our candidates to be women, uh, 30 candidates to be under 30. We have to nominate 116 candidates, which I think is why the the executive uh, declared an electoral emergency, which gives them the power to sort of appoint candidates as they need to. And I know that some of the struggle back in 2018, and I myself was part of it, were that a lot of the nominations happened so late. And David Morris himself, from what I recall, ran against four or five other candidates in Toronto Centre, but wasn't actually nominated officially uh, until three or four days before the writ dropped, which I don't think gave him or any candidate enough time to really build a team, get the momentum they needed to try and be successful. Um, During my nomination, I had a few more months ahead of that, and um, there were maybe five or six candidates who were interested, who put in their nomination papers, um, who started signing up members. Um, but you know, I was sort of early on in the process. I put in my uh, my papers to get greenlit, and eventually, over time, as I signed up more members, other people dropped out on their own. They decided they didn't want to run against uh, other other people uh, for the nomination. It's it's tricky because this is a personal decision. And when you talk to a number of different people on the inside trying to understand what what are the chances that this this writing gets uh, somebody appointed in so that I get bumped out because then I'm just sort of wasting my time. Right. We just saw that with the federal liberals last week who appointed two candidates for Toronto Center and for York Center, of which we already saw a couple of candidates announce that they were running uh, for the nominations, including some. Um, you know, very prominent liberals uh, who wanted to, to run for those nominations. So it, it's always tricky. And then it's kind of you're taking on this personal risk. Do I try to still run for this nomination despite someone else potentially having more of an inside track? Am I going to be able to, to get the members that I need to be competitive? And with the timeline as short as it is, and you know, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not defending the party here. I'm not speaking for the party, but I know the biggest challenge is, you know, we have to nominate a candidate every week for the next two years and we still won't have enough time if we did that. So I, I would prefer if, if nominations were sort of more clear and transparent out in the open and run by Elections Ontario and, and have a process that's not so party insider. But uh, until the, the, the government potentially mandates that, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I guess, Sabrina, what do you think? What do you think they could do to uh, avoid the at least perception that this is being um, done underhandedly? Yeah, I think bringing up perception, like you just brought up, a ton of good points that I can't wait to get into. Um, so, yeah, like I do think, um, you know, this could be like a death by a thousand cuts thing. Like we're still talking about the drama with the PCs and their nominations uh, from 2018. And yeah, like I said, the Liberals have the most ground to make up, uh, the most nominations to do of all the parties. Like they are the most ripe for for where I guess us reporters are going to be finding the, the drama. But but yeah, like to the public, you know, uh this is one of the, you know, one of the, the reasons that uh, the people people had a distaste for the liberals. You know, it's like this insidery backroom um, uh, happenings that, that people just don't don't like that. Um, and so I, I think that there is a real risk here. You know, um, uh, if if, you know, there are more candidates and I will, you know, at the risk of scooping myself, I will say, you know, in, in reporting on this stuff and asking around, you know, I'm, I am hearing that 
you know, it's not just Toronto center, but, uh, stay tuned, you know? Um, so like, like, like I said, like, these are just like, these, these could just be things that just happen anyways with parties, you know, nominations like tend to be messy and, and, you know, it's a good thing. Like they have, they, they should be able to, uh, you know, give candidates as, as much run up as they can to the next vote. You know, this is a huge, this is a huge election. Um, but, uh, like, like for me, and I have heard from people, you know, liberals that say, well, someone might have felt discouraged and might have felt that it was because, you know, of the, of the color of their skin. But, um, you know, the way, the way I see it and, and, you know, this is their perspective is that the way I see it, they don't really see it that way. You know, they see it like, um, you know, maybe, and, and this is what one of my stories alleges is that, you know, a, a would be candidate who's, uh, who's a person of color had a conversation with Milton and, you know, basically felt really, really discouraged. Like they ended up not going for it. And, you know, what this person said was effectively, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but Milton said, you know, Toronto center, uh, all Toronto is really competitive. Like, uh, like there's other ways you could help the party. Like, um, and, and when I, when I try to get reaction, like some people, you know, uh, think that that's completely fine. That's, that's Milton being realistic about your chances. And, um, you which know, is, which you could say is good advice. And it might be that, you know, you've got a lot to do and not a lot of time and, uh, we are all ready to go like, it's like with, with these nominations and, and that might be a, a realistic thing, but, um, I think when someone when it gets to a point where someone, you know, actually decides like, wow, like here's this, you know, high level person. Um, and, you know, Milton's not just the riding association president, he's senior legal counsel for the party. So I think, you know, I'm talking to some people who are saying that that's problematic for them. So yeah, there, there are definitely two sides of the coin. But for me, it's just like, why is OLP saying they're going to do this? And they're not going to do it. Like some, if some people don't matter, like for me, it's just like, come out and say, we, we, we want this candidate, you know, they're a great candidate. Um, and we want to have a shot. Like for me, it's, it's about saying one thing publicly and then other people not really having that experience and, uh, you know, maybe being turned off from, from politics. And that's, uh, that's not good for our democracy. I don't think. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges, Sabrina, is that obviously there are, uh, like, we're talking about people who are in parties who, uh, have their own opinions, who have preferences for who they think is a good or not good candidate. The party itself has obviously uh, set out certain targets and goals of of getting diversity uh, candidates out there. But like, even when I ran in 2018, and I won't say who this is, but I had a senior liberal person tell me to my face, you are not the right color of person to run in Oakville. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, you know what? Screw you. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I'm going to push against the grain. And I don't care if I'm not necessarily the preferred candidate of this person, but it's still within my power to get organized, to go through the process um, and sort of, sort of, you know, show my mettle in this process. Right. And there are, I think, lots of examples of those of, of that. But I think what you're pointing out is that obviously the party was trying to encourage uh, as many um, uh, diverse candidates to take a look, right? And I and I would continue to encourage um, uh, people of color, uh, the people in the LGBT community, women especially, who need to be asked on average seven times more often uh, in order to run, to continue trying to run and to push through because it's a personal decision and you may not get all the support that you think that you're going to get or you may not be necessarily welcomed with open arms if you're uh, if you don't feel like you're necessarily part of 
the establishment, uh, but it doesn't preclude you. It doesn't prevent you from actually doing it and from pushing through and, and from and from winning. Right. Like that's still definitely a, a process that's open to you. Uh, when those conversations happen, one thing that's really struck me uh, is, you know, uh, in seeking a nomination and trying to get involved in a party, you're going to meet all kinds of people who have been in it longer than you, who have, you know, who have connections. And, uh, you know, I think this is one of the important things to remember and, and perhaps attention that this process necessarily has is that when sort of senior liberals are talking outside of the of, of the circle, um, it is always in the backdrop of the party having just so many tools to control nominations. And I guess maybe a question for for the two of you is, um, you know, there that uh, that is uh, obviously you know has some problems from a democracy perspective. But the party has also set these targets uh, that they are presumably going to be accountable to achieve uh, for representation in, in the slate. And, you know, I can definitely see some folks from the party saying, well, we actually, we need this level of control to make sure that we actually hit these targets. So, you know, I'm sure that that, that is a tension that they are managing. I'm just curious uh, if there are any thoughts about the appropriateness of, of maybe the level of central control the party has versus, you know, an ability to actually hit these targets that they set for themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I think, uh, yeah, like that's, um, you know, that is something that I think, you know, people would buy. I, I, I would buy the party, you know, saying that, that we need to, you know, they, they promised 50% women on the ticket, at least 30 candidates under 30. Uh, but for me, it comes back to like winnable ridings, you know, um, yeah. it, it's like, where are these, where are these folks being run? Um, like I said, Toronto Center, you know, David Morris uh, is gay, but he's a, a white cis male. And I, I think, you know, that's a very, very diverse riding. A lot of a lot of other folks wanted a shot there. And one thing I just wanted to go back to uh, is like, we've been talking a lot about, you know, how this could, you know, the nomination story could could hurt the liberals um, and, and what it, it uh, the perception of, you know, the party backroom and that type of thing. And even for reporters like me, like it's no one really wants to talk because you still want to be viewed in, in good standing with the party and, and all of the don't want to be seen airing dirty laundry. But at the same time, you want to see, you know, the change on the party to really live up to these things that it's saying. So yeah, I just wanted to make that point. But I think, yeah, totally. like for, you know, these targets and meeting these targets, I think for me, it comes down to, to where are these where are these folks being run? And also, you know, be up, be upfront about that, I, I think, is what I'm hearing liberals want. But, I mean, the party is also, or the commissioner has the ability, the nominations commissioner, I should say, within the Liberal Party, has the ability to declare certain ridings, um, women-only ridings, so only women or people who identify as women can run uh, in those ridings. And from what I've heard, they are trying to identify almost an equal number of winnable ridings in order to do that. But time will tell. And I, I think the biggest challenge that the Ontario Liberal Party has specifically is that, you know, they can't run an, a, a nomination a week. And that's an election, right? Like they have to have an election where with free membership now and online voting could see thousands of members sign up and try to go through this process uh, more than one a week. And uh, with you know, the debt from the previous campaign and, and only having eight seats right now and sort of rebuilding and trying to build towards the election in 2022 don't necessarily have the capacity to to do this, maybe to the level that people would like it to be done. And certain writings have to be 
have to be done every week in order to to get to that number. So I don't know that there's an ideal solution here other than wholesale change, which isn't going to happen for uh, for the next little while. Oh, completely. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is either. I should say, but I like asking questions about it. I mean, it's it's a really uh, it's a really fine line that that you kind of have to straddle here. I think, but um, yeah, you know, for for uh, all intents and purposes, it does seem like. They have a lot of leeway in nominations, and there are going to be people um, who aren't happy with how they're rolled out. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, you know really hits home for me is you know one of the consequences of drawing so much power in centrally is you know then comes a responsibility to uh, make sure that you know you are exercising it and uh, in a way that is representative of people's expectations and you know questions about how that goes and investigation light into that process uh, is only a good thing so we are uh, uh, tremendously grateful that you uh, took some time out of your day to talk to us about what that looks like and that is all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening this is the first episode of Ontario Loud Season 4. Welcome back. If you've made it to the end of our newer, longer episode format, you are just the best. We are placing a bet here that uh, if, we're pr- if we produce some quality content in the additional time, people will stick around. So if you're here, you are proof that that strategy is working. And, you know, if I'm speaking into the void and you're not right now, maybe it's not working. I don't know. It's our first episode, but it's exciting. I just want to say that Ontario Loud is Sam Andre, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Grumatel Warkapur and myself, Chris Martin. We are supported by a couple amazing volunteers. Uh, if you have thoughts about what you're hearing, get us on Twitter at OntarioLoud or uh, send us an email at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's what I got. We will see you next week.